0: Was that a new hymn for most of you? Yeah, a powerful hymn. We'll sing that again now that you're familiar with it, but just a great, great, powerful hymn, as they all are. Well, last week, we began a series that started in the first verse of chapter 5 of James, and we're coming to the home stretch of our study through the Epistle of James. And this series that will end today, it's just a two-week series, is entitled Suffering Wealth. And we began last week with a look at how those who are wealthy and use that wealth for sinful purposes are destined for judgment. These are those in the church, whether true believers or those who are unsaved but are professing believers. That's why this letter would be read to them. They would be recipients of this letter. But in God's sovereignty, they have amassed much wealth. And we're talking about physical wealth, earthly wealth, money, gold, stuff. There's nothing sinful about being rich. We trust God to do what he wants to do, to give how he wants to give. But there is something sinful about hoarding wealth in a way that trusts in your riches and passing earthly stuff rather than God. There is something sinful about making your goal in life the pursuit of wealth and earthly happiness rather than eternal reward and godly joy. So much so that we saw that James said in verse 3 that those very riches that you treasure on earth will be the very witnesses against you on judgment day. And as we continue this morning in verses 4 through 6, we will see that it is not only the sinful wealthy themselves that suffer. By abusing their wealth and subsequent power, the wealthy cause the poor and righteous to suffer. They exploit them. Let's take a look. James chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. James chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. He writes, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you this morning, three consequent outcomes of the sinful pursuit of wealth. Three consequent outcomes of the sinful pursuit of wealth. In other words, we are going to look at three aspects of the sinful pursuit of wealth and the three negative situations that they lead to, thus the three consequent outcomes of the sinful pursuit of wealth. As a reminder, This is not just general confrontation of anyone who is wealthy. It is their heart. It is what they pursue and what they desire. And so it's not just the rich that are in sin. It is how they pursue those riches, what their heart's desire is, and perhaps even how they came about getting those riches. And so this is not for you just because you're wealthy and a Christian, but there is much to learn about the hard attitude in pursuing wealth and riches, which means there is much to learn also if you consider yourself poor. The first consequent outcome of the sinful pursuit of wealth is that greed leads to grief. Greed leads to grief. I'm going to read for you again verse 4. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. On the heels of our review of last week's sermon, we now see the very practical example of what these sinful rich not only have the ability to do, but are actually doing. To sum up, they are withholding the pay of their workers, their employees, specifically the day laborers who work their fields. And immediately we are told that in James' example, the rich person in question is a landowner. He owns much farmland, perhaps even overtaking it and buying it off the person who is now working for him. At this time in history, there was a very small group of extremely wealthy landowners who owned the majority of farmable land. And just as today, in order to successfully farm this land... They had to hire people to do it, and in their culture, it was day laborers who would work the fields. Now, especially in California, we see this today in our farms. We call them migrant workers who, for very little pay, are working the fields, seasonal. They move from place to place depending on what is in season and what, uh, what farms they can work at. What we are seeing in James is totally different because in that culture, This was normal work for a typical wage. In other words, I don't think there's anyone in here that is a migrant worker, migrant farmer, or a day laborer. Most of us here do not personally know a migrant farmer. They don't live in our neighborhoods. They're not part of normal society. Not so in James' day and age. These were normal people, everyday people. There's nothing embarrassing about this work. This is what people did. So, this is not James calling for immigration reform or the use of an obscure example that his readers would vaguely know about, not have any experience with. This is an example from normal, everyday life. So much so, in fact, that the Greek word laborer that James uses here generally refers to anyone who works, but is most often used to farm workers. That's how common this was. The picture then is of this individual who has, James says, mowed the fields of these people, these wealthy landowners, they're working for them. So these are laborers, hired day by day, working on another man's field, jumping on their John Deere riding mowers. No. Mowing here means reaping, gathering. Okay, and the reason I'm making jokes that apparently are not funny is because I want to warn you against taking all of this into our modern context. Mowed means to cut down in the sense of cutting grain. So gathering or reaping. So these are just your typical farm workers who are gathering the produce for this landowner. What is most important here, perhaps, is that the word mode is in the past tense. Why is this important? Because in James's illustration, the work is done, the work is finished. There is no question here about the quality of the laborer's work, there's no question about the completion of the work. It is done. Now they get, need to get paid. And therein lies the problem the owners, the bosses, have withheld the laborer's pay. Now, something you need to understand is that the day laborer lived, we would say paycheck to paycheck. Obviously, again, they wouldn't get actual paychecks. They didn't have bank accounts. It was not a bi-monthly paycheck. This was daily payment at the end of the day. And that payment, usually in the form of a coin, would be necessary for that day labor to survive the next day. You don't pay the day laborer today, he may not eat tomorrow. And that gives you a little preview of why at the end of this passage he says you're killing these people, literally. We have an accurate picture of this in Jesus' well-known parable in Matthew 20. Remember the landowner goes and hires different day laborers at different times. They're all expecting different pay. This is not the point of the parable, but we get a picture of there. Essentially, the foreman is called to pay these people, and you can envision them lining up and everyone getting their pay at the end of the day, and they go home, one by one, holding out their hand, being given their coins. And to be clear, the problem that James addresses is not delayed payment. It is not partial payment. It is not forgotten payment. This is a willful defrauding and exploiting of the workers by not paying them for the work that is already done. And You would have a problem with this. You would have a problem with your employer if you didn't get a paycheck. And You don't even need the money right away. And you can see how much more sinful and hurtful this is when the money was needed immediately to survive the next 24 hours. The withholding of money... It's such a gross problem in God's eyes that these Jews, remember these are converted to Christianity Jews, they would be familiar with the prohibition of withholding wages because it is in the Old Testament and it is very clear in the Old Testament how wicked this is, how much God dislikes this. I invite you to turn to the front of your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19 the third book of your Bible, Leviticus 19 and verse 13. And this is the law of God. This is the, these are the rules. This is what God gave his people, the Jews, Israel, the nation of Israel, to set them apart as holy and God's beloved. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. And here it is. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You are not even to say, I'll pay you in the morning. Because how are they going to pay for dinner that night after a hard day of field work? How are they going to buy their breakfast in the morning to work for you again tomorrow? You are not even to hold it overnight. When the day is done, when the bell rings, when the laborers are through, you pay them. Same situation, right? They need it. Years later, the people are in the same situation they need their money that evening turn ahead a couple books to deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 14 and 15 deuteronomy chapter 24 we'll see again the same idea in verses 14 and 15 talking about the hired servant same idea day labor okay this is not necessarily a long term contract this may be day by day Verse 14 says, You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your own countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land, in your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he will not cry out against you to the Lord, and it becomes sin in you. And that's what people would do when they're cheated or they're hurt back then. They would cry out to the Lord, and we'll see the same thing is happening in the church, as we complete James's illustration in James five. This is simply a warning. Back in Deuteronomy twenty four, remember you got to pay these people. It's a reminder, but it also serves as a warning. You fast forward to James's day, and people are intentionally violating this principle, again for the sake of padding their own pockets look at that last phrase again in Deuteronomy twenty four fifteen, So that he will not cry against you to the Lord, and it becomes sin in you. This is serious stuff. This is sinful greed. Even a, a forgotten coin, just in unintentional neglect, you are hurting someone, and they may cry out to the Lord because that's how important it is. Now, let's go back to James chapter 5. At the end of verse 4, he says, The withheld pay cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Now, back in verse 3 that we looked at last week, James personified the rust of the precious metals that these people are hoarding as a witness against the wickedness of these rich. Now he personifies the withheld wages as that which cries out as a witness against them as well. And this time, the actual cries, literally in the Greek, shouting or screaming, of the people who did the harvesting are mentioned. These shouts, James says, have been heard by the Lord. Now there are many names or titles for God in the Scriptures, And in many contexts, a particular name of God is used to emphasize a particular point. We do the same thing. For example, if you're thanking God because someone just accepted Christ, someone just got saved, we may say, oh, great, merciful God. Or if you're in the midst of a trial, you may pray, our sovereign or gracious God. And here we see that James uses, particularly and specifically for this context, the Lord of Sabaoth. Not to be confused with the word sabbath. Sabaoth is the transliteration of the Hebrew word for army. You understand what a transliteration is? We take a foreign language and rather than coming up with a different word in our language, English, we just take a word and make it sound like exactly what the other word in another language sounds like. Okay? For example, in Greek, we have the word baptism right in greek it's baptizo rather than say oh we're going to immerse people which would be more accurate cuz baptizo means to immerse we just transliterated that word and basically made it sound english baptism and in the old testament we often see this title for god lord of sabaoth as Lord of Hosts, you're familiar with this term, Lord of Hosts. It's dozens of times in the Old Testament. That is the same thing, because the word hosts in the Old Testament Hebrew is the word t'zabot, translated, or transliterated here sabaoth, Lord of Hosts, Lord of Armies. And so, this title for God, the Lord of Hosts, Lord of Sabaoth, emphasizes the omnipotence or the infinite power of God. And it draws your attention to the fact that he has a heavenly host, a heavenly army at his disposal, waiting and willing to fulfill his holy and righteous will. And in this case, that holy and righteous will is to punish the sinful exploitation of the poor to hoard their already plentiful wealth. James says, you are doing this and God has heard. God has heard. And you better be careful. Because the laborers are crying out at your greed and sin against them and God has heard. And not just God, but the God of vengeance and wrath who has armies upon armies of the most powerful created being you can imagine at his disposal. The Lord of Sabaoth. This is not just a call to repentance. This is a plain, clear, downright threat. Watch it. You ripped off your workers. You ignored their cries. But guess who listened? The avenger of all that is right and good. From the parables of Christ, we see that this was a common practice. Wealthy landowners in first century Palestine are pictured as especially greedy and cruel. While they are focused on the earthly here and now, they have forgotten the heavenly and eternal. On a side note, we must always make the passage's main point the main point. And here the main point is the danger the wicked are putting themselves in because of their greed, but we can find a secondary lesson here, which is for those who are on the receiving end of such behavior. Thankfully, we live in a country where business businesses, rather, police themselves through human resources, and if not, the government will get involved. But whenever we are truly hurt, cheated, we need to know that God hears our cries In fact, he knows exactly what's happening before we even cry out to him. God knows, God sees, God will take care of us and provide. And for the righteous and those pursuing holiness, that God of hosts with the heavenly angels at his disposal are standing behind us on our side, and he will avenge our difficulties. He will avenge us. We take comfort in that, and we'll see more of this as James addresses these Christian workers in our passage next week. But take comfort in that. Take comfort in all the power and the vengeance and anger and wrath of God is against His enemies, which includes the enemies of His people, us. Well, you'll notice That although the threat is looming, the actual action of God is not mentioned here in verse 4. It just says that he hears. Uh, The potential is clearly there in that title, Lord of hosts. But as we move on to verse 5, we will see the Lord of Sabaoth's actual response. So let's do that and see our second consequent outcome of the sinful pursuit of wealth. And that is self-indulgence leads to self-indictment. Self-indulgence leads to self-indictment. Look at verse 5. Speaking to these wicked wealthy, he says, You have lived luxuriously on the earth. You have led a life of want and pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Again, the picture here is not of someone who is wealthy or even someone who is wealthy and living a comfortable life. This is the picture of someone who lives a life of sinful self-indulgence and earthly pleasure at the expense of others and to the neglect of God. To live luxuriously speaks of soft luxury. The word means soft. It seems strange, but we have uh, this traditional idea in America of a man having soft hands indicating that he's never done a hard day's work. It's proverbial these days since hard work no longer means manual labor, but we still get this. There's a softness to the wealthy who hire people to do all of their housework, all of their heavy lifting, all of their fixing. There's a softness to living in expensive fabrics like silk and cashmere. There's even an emotional or mental softness that comes with using money to remove anything that causes discomfort, embarrassment, or exertion. And so we can see how James uses luxuriously to describe a soft, sinful, self-indulgent lifestyle. James goes on to say this person has also led a life of wanton pleasure. That phrase, led a life of wanton pleasure, is one word in the Greek, and it is translated in that one word in the ESV and NIV, self-indulgence. That's what it means. The phrase in English, the word means to live recklessly, to live carelessly, to not care about finances, to not care about others, to not care about borrowing money, knowing that you can't pay it back. We see how those who love the world do this because they're only focused on self, not the poor, not the church not the creditors, living in such a way that they have no regard for living within their means or if they're wealthy, living far beyond what they can justifiably use or even enjoy themselves. It is the picture of overindulgence, fully focused on the pursuit of pleasure and comfort and then living in that pleasure and comfort. We know that when people live like this, It is often not enough just to amass things, stuff. There's an end to those things. There's only so many vacation homes you can buy, so much speed you can have in a race car, so many gadgets you can have. Self-indulgence, when pursued without inhibition, becomes a pursuit of more than just money and possessions. You see this. The extremely wealthy, when they have it all, delve into sexual immorality, sinful thrill seeking, even history has shown us murder for sport. They just want more because the physical objects are not enough. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel says about Sodom Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah. If I were to ask you, what is their sin? You know the story with Lot. What is their sin? You would say, well, their sin is what led to the word sodomy. That's where it comes from. The Bible story of Sodom and Gomorrah, sexual immorality, immoral homosexuality. But according to Ezekiel, the prophet of God, the mouthpiece of God, that was not ultimately the issue. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 through 50, where he tells Israel and warns them and gives the example of their sister Sodom. He says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus, they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. It was their pride and it was their wealth and self-indulgence and neglecting the poor and needy that then led to the grossness of, hey, you have a visitor, send them out so we can molest them. You think you just want money, you're fooling yourselves if you think it will just stop there. We call it love of the world and not just love of money for a reason. The sin that the world offers us is not just money. Single ladies, if your number one priority in finding a husband is that he is rich, watch out. Watch out. Or if you're married and you push your husband to not be concerned about spiritual things, but only be concerned about comfort and money and financial success, to amass wealth, to focus only on giving the kids a good education so they can be successful rather than godly. Be careful because that luxurious lifestyle filled with stuff is going to push him to want something more. I have seen it in my family. I have seen it in friends. You see it all the time in your favorite athletes and rock stars. They have everything they want. They're already, from a worldly perspective, right? Tiger Woods. You are married to a supermodel. And yet, from an earthly perspective, that still was not enough for him. And he had to go seek out others. Careful, friends. It's not just money. It le- leads to oppressing the poor. It leads to self-indulgence in other worldly ways. Back to James 5. Together, these two descriptions in James 5.5. 5, Picture a man who is wealthy and uses that wealth not for the advancement of the kingdom or helping the poor, but in flagrant consumption, irresponsible pleasure seeking one of the ways that the wealthy landowner back then would make their wealth was not just by raising livestock, but as they do today, fattening the livestock so that they could be sold for a maximum price. So the meat is marbled. So there's more meat to sell, kilo per kilo. And then they slaughter the cow or whatever it is and then sell the meat. And thus the appropriate analogy James uses at the end of the verse, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Fatten basically means to feed, but in the context of raising livestock for food or to sell, here analogized for the rich person, it means to force feed for the sake of fattening for slaughter. Stuffing, we would say, is a modern equivalent. And like that animal that is fed beyond what is needed for survival, this sinful, rich individual lives a life that is far beyond what is necessary and even far beyond what would be considered comfortable by most. The big difference here, though, is that the animal has this done to it. It doesn't eat like that on its own. This is what animal rights activists are complaining about. We're force-feeding our animals. It's, it's unwilling. They're an unwilling recipient of overfeeding for the benefit of its owner. The owner, on the other hand, does it to himself. He overfeeds himself in self-indulgence. They want to do this. They choose to live like this if not for the enjoyment of the food, for the fact that especially back then it was a sign of look how wealthy I am indulging every passion, every desire or whim that would feed their selfish wants and exorbitant lifestyle. But there is also a similarity between the rich man and the animal. And that is this. They are both unaware that the fattening is leading to slaughter. For the animal, this is physical and intentional. For the wicked, this is spiritual and unexpected. As we saw last week, this day has already begun to dawn. The last days having been inaugurated with the first coming of Christ. That phrase, the day of slaughter, provides a vivid and frightening picture of God's judgment upon these evil men. It's like many scenarios that are normal for us. Things that we see all the time, but they become disgusting, unexpected, and terrifying when you put a human being into that normally seen scenario. I mean, isn't that one of the basic methods of shocking the audience of horror movies? Putting a human being inside of or in front of something that we see all the time, just not with people. A chainsaw, a bear trap, a cattle prod, a wood chipper. And it's the same shocking device that James is using here. The shock factor shows how gross and grossly dangerous their lifestyle is. They are preparing their hearts in their wicked pursuit of wealth for a day of slaughter. There will be a judgment upon these people for their wicked lifestyle and by their own fattening, proverbially and physically. They are indicting themselves for the judgment of God. And remember, this is more than just living this way. It is living this way sinfully and at the expense of others. They are self-indulgent thieves that have stolen from the poor to give to the rich And the rich are themselves. And when we look at the testimony of Scripture, it is not just the condemnation of the rich that we see as a prevalent theme for God's people, it is also the care of the poor. We are commanded often to do this in the New Testament. But let's look at the Old Testament to see what God thinks about this. Turn with me to Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5, it's the third of the minor prophets, the minor prophets being the 12 shorter prophetic books that end your Old Testament. Amos chapter 5. I'll give you a minute, I know they're hard to find if you have a paper Bible, if you're not familiar. Amos chapter 5, verses 11 through 12. Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them, though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, yet you will not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, yet you will not drink their wine. This isn't because they're too busy. Look at verse 12. For I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. The poor need help, say, nope, not you. But you wealthy people who are ready for, come on in to the party. He says, you're not going to drink of your vineyards. You're not going to live in your vacation homes because God's going to judge you before then. Turn to chapter 8 of Amos. Look at verses 4 through 14. Amos chapter 8, starting in verse 4. Again, you'll see this theme of oppressing and hurting the poor. Hear this, you who trample the needy to do away with the humble of the land. Remember we talked about this last week? The poor and needy are often considered called the righteous and humble in Scripture. Look at verse 5 saying, When will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain? All they care about is money. And the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market. And look at this, they cheat. To make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger. And to cheat with dishonest scales. So as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals, and that we may sell the refuse of the wheat, the part that is junk that can't be eaten. Right? The scales back then, they, they had these uh, old scales, right? You would put the weight on, you kind of eyeball and say, this looks like a kilogram. So you put the kilogram weight on the other side and you take off weights or add weights so that it's even. So they would cheat. And say, oh yeah, this is a kilogram weight, but it's only 0.95 kilos. Right? So they make more money. They're cheating people. All they care about is money. And many of the people who would buy their wheat and their wares would be the poor. And so they're making more money off of the poor. Look at verse 7. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, indeed, I will never forget any of their deeds, Because of this will not the land quake and everyone who dwells in it mourn. Again, pictures of God's wrath. Indeed, all of it will rise up like the Nile and it will be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight." Then I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lamentation, and I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on every head, and I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son. Things are going to be so bad. It'll be as if your only child that you tried so hard to get pregnant, you will only had one child and it was a son, you will mourn in that day as if you were lost that son. This is all the judgment of God on those who oppress the poor. And the end of it will be like a bitter day. Verse 11, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it even in their desire, even in their sinfulness, saying our last resort is to cry out to the Lord, the Lord will say, nope, too late. In that day, the beautiful virgins and the young men will faint from thirst. The virgins and young men, of course, will be the most healthy, the strongest. Verse 14, as for those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, who say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of be- Beersheba lives, they will fall and not rise Again, I think it's pretty clear what God thinks about taking advantage of the poor. Keep in mind, this is not the picture of someone going and saying, ooh, I saw that guy in front of me. He gave five bucks to that homeless man. Homeless man fell asleep. I'm going to steal that $5. That's not what we're talking about. What many would, people would say, what James is describing here is, good business. Good business. Pay your workers less or don't pay them at all. And guess what? You, sir, make more money. Your business pleases the shareholders. You see, it's not direct thievery, but it is thievery. It's exploitation. It's oppressing the poor. And if all that wasn't enough. James proceeds by going back to the real-time consequences of the poor. We see this in our third and final outcome, consequent outcome of the sinful pursuit of wealth. We've seen that greed leads to grief. Self-indulgence leads to self-indictment. And finally, number three, exploitation leads to execution. Verse 6, You have condemned and put to death the righteous man, he does not resist you. Again, talking directly to the wicked wealthy. The problems with the love of the world combined with wealth just keep getting worse and worse, don't they? We saw last week that they are hoarding their wealth. We saw earlier that they are exploiting, exploiting the poor by withholding pay. We just saw that they are living in sin through their excessive self-indulgence. And now, James says, the wicked wealthy are physically harming and even killing the righteous poor. Though all of the above, but especially the withholding of wages or through all of the above, and especially the withholding of wages, they are passing sentence on the righteous man. And the sentence is death. That's what put to death means. It means murder. That's the literal word in the Greek, murder. Put to death, that phrase, speaks of murder in every single usage in the New Testament. And that's how the ESV, NIV, and LSB translate it, murder. That's a serious accusation to these people as much as it is a serious crime. But how are they murdering people? As mentioned earlier, by not giving them their pay day after day, the laborers are kept from being able to eat. And what starts as just a seemingly innocuous way to save a little money ends up in murder. Conscious of it or not, the landowner has served as judge, jury, and executioner all because of his greed. Amos 2.6 says, They sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Notice that James is comparing the sinful man and the righteous man. As has often been the case, it is the righteous, it is the holy, it is the upright who are taken advantage of by the unscrupulous, rich, and powerful, and arrogant. You deal with this every day. The arrogant will always take advantage of the humble. That comparison is made all the more stark when of the righteous man, James says at the end of the verse, he doesn't even resist you. You kill him and he doesn't even fight back. And let's be honest. What can this person do? There's no help that will be given. He's a day laborer. Roman senators, who do you think they're going to side with? Judges in their pocket. There's no human resources. There's no power for this poor individual, there's nothing he can do except for the believer, the most important thing, cry out to the Lord, as we've seen. I mean, back in James 2, we saw that the rich dragged these people into court. Fine, you want to fight this in court because of your Shekels Day page? Go ahead. I will crush you. I have power. I have influence. I have connections. They're not even going to try. What makes this especially sinful Is that the wealthy landowner is not doing this because he himself has no money? It's not because he forgot. Doesn't mean that he's, it's not because he's on vacation or traveling for business, forgot to hire a foreman to give out the money. It's because he's willing to hurt, he's willing to have his workers die in order to fill his already full pockets. But in spite of all that the righteous poor man does not have in society, he does have God. And again, that will be impact for us next week as James tells these victims, be patient. And so we've seen three consequent outcomes of the sinful pursuit of wealth. Greed leads to grief, self-indulgence leads to self-indictment, exploitation leads to execution. As many of you know, since the end of last year, my family and I have endured some pretty significant medical issues and hospital stays. And with significant medical issues and hospital stays come significant medical bills. And so for the past few months, my family and I had to be a little tight with our budget And because we want them to understand and also teach them about good stewardship, we explain to our three boys, obviously at different ages with different level of understanding. So boys, we're not really going to be able to eat out for a while, except on special occasions. And when we do, we're going to have more leftover nights because throwing away food is throwing away cash. The big thing that we had explained to them, because they're young kids, said, we're going to have to cut back on some of the extras at the grocery store, some of the extra treats we would buy you, just for a little while. This is just for a season, but the Lord provides. You get it. We've all been there. My youngest, who was seven, was so sweet and so kind. And he goes, Daddy, you know when we do go to the, the restaurant, and they give us those little packets of, of condiments? I said, yeah. He said, do we pay for those? I said, no, they, they give us those. He said, well, then we can save money by, by going to the restaurant and taking those packets. <laughs> and he, he, didn't, he just wanted to help. You know, he's just got a sweetheart. He's super helpful. And I said, oh, buddy, I looked at him. I said, listen here, you depraved little thief. No. I didn't say that. He's seven. He doesn't get that. He doesn't get that it's stealing. He doesn't get that there's kind of gray areas and moral ways to save money. He's just seven. But we get it. We get it. You say, nobody there really cares. The worker doesn't care, God cares. It's stealing perhaps not with soy sauce and ketchup, but we do these types of things. Questionable gray areas to keep or get more money. Things that may not even be illegal, things that may be socially acceptable, but are not at a level of biblical integrity. I was thinking of a man who I knew his grandson-in-law. He was the founder of what is considered the top uh, water ski uh, powerboat in the world. He actually wrote a book about this story on the waters of the world. The Maloon family, I believe it's, that was their name. And, you know, if you go to SeaWorld or, you know, you used to go to uh, Marine World back here in the Bay Area years ago. They used to have a water ski show, And they would talk about all these things and they would always mention their speedboat that they had. And you're like, why do do I care what brand it is? Because if you are in that world, you know that's the best of the best. That's the Rolls Royce of speedboats. Along comes a world war. And this man is commissioned by the U.S. Navy to build hundreds of boats. So he pours all of his money into it. And there was one military official who was tasked to examine all the boats and to make sure that they were fit. And for whatever reason, he didn't like this family. Whether he was trying to get a contract with his own friends or didn't like they were Christians, we don't know. And so he would find a little problem with every single boat. He rejected all of them. Little things. There's a scratcher. Nothing that would compromise the integrity or the power of that military vessel. And so that company went bankrupt. They had no money. And as you know, as an official business, by declaring bankruptcy, he had zero obligation to pay back those who borrowed money or that lent him money, those he borrowed money from. But he was a Christian. And he didn't care what the law said. And he built up his business and spent decades paying back every single dollar, not because the government cared, because he knew God cares. There were instances where they would knock on a door and the person who had lent them money had long ago died. And they said, your father lent me this money. And the man would say, no, no, it's okay. He said, no, you take it. Your father lent me this money. And it's not about you and your finances. It's about me and my relationship with God. I owe your family money. Take it back. Decades he spent doing that. This is the kind of people we have to be. It's an issue of integrity. You ever return something on Amazon? They make it very easy. It's streamlined. It's automated. You don't have to talk to anyone. You just go online. But there's one thing they do ask you to do, aside from clicking what you want to return and putting it in. They even, you can even bring it somewhere. You know that now UPS store? You don't have to box it up. They prefer that, actually. Well, the one thing they ask is there's a drop-down list, and they say, why are you returning this item? You don't even have to fill it in. It's, it, you pick. And there's a lot of, lot of things on there. And to show you how, how uh, generous their return policy is, one of those things on there says, no longer needed." I don't I don't want it anymore. Just take it, pay for the shipping, take it back. Things like better price available, product damaged If it's clothing, too big, too small, color wasn't what you expected. And then on that drop-down list, some of you have probably seen this. There's this one, and I'm going to read it verbatim. Received extra item I didn't buy, in parentheses, no refund needed. In other words, they made a mistake. They accidentally sent you something you didn't pay for, and they don't even know they did. They're definitely not going to give you a refund because you didn't pay for it. There's nothing to refund, but, you know, if you want to send it back because we gave it to you on accident. And you think, they're not going to charge me. They don't even know I have it. I could use two of these, one upstairs, one downstairs. I could sell it on eBay, make a little extra cash. I could give it as a gift. This thing's really nice. You see... Who would go through the effort to return it, to drive to the UPS store, box it up, and drop it off? I'll tell you who. Honest people, that's who. Christians, that's who. It's about integrity. Whether they care or not, whether Jeff Bezos cares or not, God cares, and if you keep it, you are taking advantage, you are stealing it, even if they wouldn't call it stealing. Think of it this way. You go to a store... Cashier rings you up, it's fifteen dollars. You give him two twenty dollars, accidentally thinking it's two tens. And the cashier goes, Oh, you gave me an extra twenty by mistake, but you gave it to me, so I'm gonna keep it. You say, I need to talk to a manager. Your cashier just stole twenty dollars. So how is it okay that we do it to other people? Here's the point. Although not to the same degree in taking away someone's ability to eat and live, you are essentially doing the same thing as the wicked landowner. You are exploiting someone whom you have the ability to exploit for the sake of financial gain. Whether it's an individual, a business, the IRS, or the system as a whole, it's wrong and it's sinful. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Saboth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the way you provide for us. You call us to ask you this day for daily bread as a reminder of who provides, but at the same time you promise that you will always provide, that we don't have to worry about what we will eat or what we will wear. And Lord, you are so gracious That you provide way beyond what we need or what we can use, but just as with any of your blessings, Lord, we can use it for sin. Perhaps all of us here this morning have in some way desired money in a sinful way, wanting to manipulate the system or whatever it is to just get more, whether it's taking or even withholding, withholding from the poor, withholding from those in need, withholding from giving to missionaries, withholding from giving to the church because we think, hey, it's fine. They're doing fine. Other people will do it. But Lord, help us to understand it's not just about giving out. It's about our mindset towards you. Help us to repent if we have a love of the world, a love of money. Help us to examine our lives to see if there's any way that we are exploiting someone, even if it's an impersonal corporation, because we love you and we don't want to do that, Lord. If it means sacrificing on our groceries and eating out so that we don't have to sacrifice in our giving, Lord, help us to have the right priorities. Help us to be the people who look at others and prioritize you and other people first before ourselves. May we desire the comfort of the poor more than our own comfort. Full bellies of those who are in need more than our own. Use us, Father, to this end. Weed out the sin in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand as we sing and prepare our hearts for communion.